Hey everybody, welcome back to the Rose Woman Pod. Today, we're talking about money, money freedom, new beliefs around money. I thought I'd start by reading you a poem that some of you might know by Shel Silverstein called Smart. My dad gave me a $1 bill because I'm his smartest son, and I swapped it for two shiny quarters because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he didn't know that three is more than two. And just then, along came old Blind Bates, and just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes because four is more than three. And I took the nickels to Hiram Coombs down at the seed feed store, and the fool gave me five pennies for them, and five is more than four. And then I went and showed my dad, and he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head, too proud of me to speak. Well, (laughs) some of us are better at taking a dollar and turning it into five cents than the other way around. And we are, you know, on the positive side, reminded of, you know, the, the parable of the talents. You know, what will you do with what you've been given? Will you multiply it? Will you grow it? And... How do we come into full positive freedom and positive relationship around our finances? So today, to answer that question, I have the amazing Barry Tesler, who is a financial therapist and a financial coach who helps people on what she calls their money journey. And for me, the question of how we manage our money is the core question of how do we resource the change we want to see happen in the world. It's not about receiving for the self alone. In her book, The Art of Money, A Life-Changing Guide to Financial Happiness, Barry tells a lot of stories and then she couples it with her psychotherapy background to approach money from an altogether different standpoint, not from how to do QuickBooks and how to do accounting and all of that stuff, but sort of how to get over the inner blocks and accountability questions that will help you be free and be in choice and not reaction in this area. So please welcome Barry Tesler. Today, we are very fortunate to have author Barry Tesler, financial therapist, founder of The Money School, come to talk to us about one of the most pressing issues for women worldwide, which is how do we get in touch with our money and our capital accumulation and the power that that holds in the world? And how do we tie that to our values and our spirituality? So Barry, welcome to the Rose Woman Pod. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me. You have a wide variety of practices in this book, The Art of Money, A Life-Changing Guide to Financial Happiness. And I was so excited to read it because it begins with an inner examination of the unconscious or maybe subconscious things that are driving our behavior around money. So I thought maybe we could just start with that. I have a lot to say about this. I've been teaching for almost 20 years now um, and spent a decade before training as a therapist. So I started doing my work in my late, very late 20s when my student loan came due. And that was a huge epiphany moment for me when I realized I did not have a healthy or creative or conscious relationship to money. um, And that this topic and these themes 
um, were completely left out of my graduate school when I was training to be a somatic therapist. And when I, you know, my student loan finally came due, it was a shocking moment of, wait a second, what is my relationship to money? Um, you know, how do I work with my couples around money if this on the surface is the biggest reason why people get divorced? You know, it's really not that. It's it's what I'm going to talk about. It's that we don't know how to communicate about money. We don't understand our emotions around money. Um, we weren't taught all the practical things about, you know, how to manage our money. And, you know, it was let alone how to start my own private practice and do all the bookkeeping. So I... Or, you know, in that moment, that was a huge moment. And that's when I started to realize that I needed to learn about money. And I started looking around because at first I thought I was the only one who had not learned about money growing up, which is silly, but that's what we all do. We go into, or many of us go into some level of shame. I'm not okay. I'm stupid around money. I wasn't good with math, good, good, good with math. Therefore, I'm not good with money. Or if I came from a different family, then I would have learned this. So it became apparent so quickly that most of us did not receive a complete financial education. So financial literacy, and we did not receive an emotional education. So emotional literacy. I can remember like, I think from in school, there was home economics and they had a class called family living. And the only thing I remember them teaching us was how to go in and negotiate to buy a car. You had to like pick somebody who would be your fake spouse and go into a car dealership and try to figure out how to buy a car and then how to balance a checkbook. That was the extent of it. And then, you know, other things is like secretive, there was shame, there was, you know, resistance to resentment of the rich resistance to spending. I mean, there were so many things that were difficult to parse apart. Yeah, I didn't even get what you got. And it's so fascinating. It's, you know, pick a spouse, always, you know, pick a male spouse, it's going to go with you and be the one who's negotiating. I didn't <laughs> yeah. learn. I didn't learn any of that. I had an accounting class that went in <laughs> and out pretty quickly, you know. So, you know, I, I want us all to know that is that for the most part, we did not, you know, we maybe received pieces or parts um but even from our families, you know, I, I, I grew up with entrepreneurs. So you think money, you would think money teachings would be passed down. And certainly I observed a lot. But when it, when it came to direct money teachings, um, they were incomplete. Or I remember my father going to my brother to talk with him about um, investing. And I was the oldest, you know, he never came to me. Um, and I, I went to him years later and we had conversations about all of this and um, now I talk with my mother about everything, but I want you all to know most of us did not receive a full, complete education, right? From schooling, from our family of origin. And, and then on top of it, there's so much taboo as we're saying, right? You're not supposed to talk about it. And I see this from all different family backgrounds, all different economic classes and all different lineages. Like, you know, if we come from a wealthy family, we're not supposed to talk about it outside of the family. If we come from a lower income family, we don't talk about this. You know, even I grew up middle class and we had tons of things that, um, you know, where we weren't supposed to talk about this or where it was, we, I, mostly I wasn't given a full, complete financial education, right? And so with all of that, I like to begin my methodology by helping people, number one, understand what are the set of money emotions that come up 
Um, these are the same set of emotions that come up in every other area of our life. And I think I was surprised by this. I think many people are surprised by this. And that's why I teach emotional literacy along with financial literacy. So one, just what are the set of emotions that come up for you? Um, and then I'm going to go into money story, but I want to talk for just a moment about the money emotions because it's everything from shame to anxiety to um, um, you know anger um, to guilt to sadness, to falling asleep. I don't know if that's an emotion, but you know, that's what comes up uh, to checking out in our bodies to, um, so what I've said, anxiety, shame, anger, sadness, guilt, you know, and then there's many more emotions in there. And then there's the other side of joy and hope. And I get to, you know, use this as a tool in accordance with my values and then everywhere in between. And then there's fight, flight, and freeze and more extreme states of mind and body that we go into in relationship to um, all the different money interactions that happen daily. And so the very first simple tool that I give is what I call the body check-in. And it's just asking us in all the daily money interactions when we're going to go online and look at our numbers and look at our balances or go through our transactions to see if there's anything funny. I found fraud on mine a month ago. Um, or if we're going to go have a money conversation with our parents or our children um, or our clients or when we're going to go online shopping, you know, just on and on and on. So checking in with our bodies on a physical level, sensation level, emotional level and what our breathing is doing. And it doesn't mean like in that moment, our emotions go away and we never have them again. This is an ongoing daily practice um, where we bring more awareness to our money emotions. Um, that leads to a deeper understanding of where some of these emotions come from and what are the stories. And this can eventually lead to change. But And then it also eventually teaches us um, how to name the emotions, how to feel them, how to sit with them, how to move them. And for me, that's a huge part of, of this first phase that I teach. I teach in my methodology in three phases. So this is part of the money healing phase. And this leads into what are our money stories, which I can talk about more. Yeah, I think this is beautiful. You give some examples for people who aren't used to doing the body check-in of when you might be in re reaction. I think you say things like when you suddenly are, can't feel your body, when you get sweaty, uh, when you numb out um, in, in the face of a money decision. And so I love that in the book, you, you actually help people by letting them see when you're in reaction rather than in response, when you're having a trigger so that it's more evident for people. And you talked about this as deep, deep money work. Um, so this idea that it can go down and hit places in your in your deep soul and in your deep values was really moving to me. You talk in there, let's see, there's one that maybe you can get into this now. The things that talks about like, oh, here's common threads that are behind it, like shame and valuing self and things like that. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Sure. So um what I started noticing over the years, certain themes, like when we go deeper and I always say it's about money and it's never about money, but it's both of it's both at the same time. Right. It's about money because what I said before, we did not receive a complete financial education, you know, on any level. Um, and then, you know, and so there's a lot of practical things that we need to learn. And then it's not literally about the money because it's about these deeper themes 
that get triggered and they come up. And and this was kind of, even though I've been teaching for so long, when I wrote this book, this chapter somewhat surprised me. And some of the deeper themes were, um, I always forget all of them, but I, you know what I remember is it touches on our value, which I can talk about. It touches on our relationship to responsibility. It touches on our relationship to power, um, enoughness, um, um, safety. Uh, so these are some of the deeper themes. And of course, it shows up in different ways for each of us. Um, value, I think day one, I used to teach my classes in tiny groups of 10 people over and over and over in my living room um, 20 years ago, at, you know, over six weeks. And now I teach you know, close to 500 people each year in a year long <laughs> program, you know, taking people through my process in a year. But even from day one, there were, you, you know, our relationship to money touched on our relationship to how we claim, define, clarify, feel, know our value. And so value, um, again, is nothing to do with our bank accounts or um, our balances you know, people say, you know, our net worth has nothing to do with our self-worth. I don't know if that's exactly how it is. And yet, again, I want you to be able to earn a livelihood that meets your bottom, you know, your basic needs and comfortable needs and go beyond that if you can, but at least your all of your basic needs into comfortable. So, but value touches on, you know, our relationship to um, ourselves and, um, you know, how we know and claim our, our worth and what that means to us. And yes, in our world, um, because we exchange um, through money, we, we have to come up with pricing and we have to come up with business models um, and all of that. But at the same time, who we truly are, you know, is not based on how much money or how little money we have in the bank account, right? So, but it go the, it goes deep into that. I'll name one more. Um, or or uh, safety. You know, how do we find true safety and security? Again, is it how much money we have? I always tell the story of Janine Roth. She has written a lot about food and body and eating, and she you know, found her safety and security by saving. And she was taught that really early on and she saved a lot of money. And one day she woke up to a call that all of her money that had been invested with Bernie Madoff was gone. And she wrote a whole book called Lost and Found. And what happened to her in that moment when she lost so much of what was you know, to her, her security. And yes, I'm, that's, you know, terrifying and awful. And, you know, an in, in, in instant, um, not windfall, but huge loss. And so, you know, after grieving and going through really, really, really questioning what does true safety security mean, um, she had to find that um, from within in, you know, from a much deeper and different source than the amount of money in her bank account. And pretty quickly she started saving again. And, you know, I, I this was, I don't know how many years ago this was, but so th there's, there's unraveling safety, you know, and just what does that mean in our bodies? And the last one is power. And this one came up for me in a huge way because it really, you know, we can understand our money stories based on everything we learned as children, um, how we responded or reacted to that, our, the class we were born into, the religion or spiritual beliefs, um, what we learned from parents, grandparents, you know, our lineage, 
Um, it's, it's on our, you know, it's based in our personality again, and how we, I love the Enneagram, just how we respond or react to what we learn. So it's based on all of that. And we create dynamics or patterns early on. And then it's also currently, how are we spending and saving and giving and investing and so on, but our money stories, um, you know, come from that. And then there, there are these deeper themes within that. And one of the, my personal money stories was realizing that my relationship with my father was really based on a power over. And he did so many things that connected with money and he really liked to be in control and use that power in that way. And so I made a lot of decisions really early on. Like I needed to make my own money. I would never be dependent on a man. Um, I wasn't going to marry until I had an equal partner and had my own, you know, all these things that, you know, really influenced um, the path I chose, the, the, my livelihood, how I made my money, the, you know, I got married at 35, had a child at 40, you know, so it was just, I was on my own trajectory and it was definitely influenced by um, all of the really challenging power dynamics um, that I had with my father that I had to unravel to get to a healthy place um, and really choose my own path. And, and how did I find empowerment and not so much power over or power under? So those are just a little bit about some of the deeper themes that come up for us. And there's a whole chapter on that in the book. Yeah, that there's some beautiful stories in there on the enoughness component. You know, I think a lot of women have a sense that they have to keep adding to themselves, clothing, uh, looks, um, adding to their household, trying to do something to sort of be current and be more, but that there's some point where you're, you are enough as you are and your choices are more conscious and then you're not fronting anymore. You know, it's not about the Instagram or the appearance. It's about your real deep values and goodness with yourself. So I love that you're inviting people. It is very self-loving. Well, it, for me, it has to be because all the first money books that I read were the opposite of that. They were all tough love. This is how you do it. They were very critical. Um, and it was all about, you know, how do you manage your money and how do you pay down debt and how do you invest? All very important things to learn, right? But live within your means. Like it was, it just felt so tough love and intense. And so, you know, everything, when I started creating this money methodology, it was, it was every single value and everything that's important to me has to come into this, you know? Um, when I'm creating my own methodology. So there has to be love. There has to be compassion. Mm, um, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, and, that, and also that like, um, I love that you have a year long program. What I have found is that in any personal growth, going slow to unwind old stories is the only way to do it. There is no fast fix. And this one's so deep. So in a year long course is probably even just the beginning. It is just the beginning. And I, it took me a while to realize that. And people for years have come, you know, and, and most really get it eventually that this is a baby step lifelong journey. Every year we're fine tuning, you know, I'm every year I'm fine tuning. Right. And so, mm. but it has to be done in baby steps again, because we weren't taught this. There's so much to learn. We're learning this as adults and you know, it, it, I love that. Yes, it's, it's one step at a time. It's lots of little baby steps to add up to change. I ask, am asking people to slow down um, mm -hmm. so that they can learn these tools. And yes, some people come in with an immediate fire. You know, I need to um, 
uh, find out really what are my options for paying down my credit card debt, you know, and I have a wonderful guy who, you know, I can teach you how to pay it down on your own, but then there's consolidation and then there's negotiation and there's bankruptcy, you know, and I have a expert for that or, hey, I'm really in a bind around student loans that, you know, and so I have an amazing resource for that. So I have gathered over the years an incredible community of other financial professionals. So, you know, book, book, yeah, go ahead. If if you're starting, I just want to say, if you're starting in a hole, just know that, that the number one thing you can do is go at it with courage, even if someone holds your hand and go at it head on. Because the minute you begin talking and negotiating, the people you owe money to chill out a little bit. You know, they, they're just happy to be in the dialogue. It's when you're running away from the conversation that they start getting aggressive. That's my experience anyway. Yeah, it's the same thing with the IRS. You know, we all are so scared. Just call. They'll work out a payment plan for you. Just call and have a clear conversation with them or anyone in your life. Yes, these are not easy conversations to have. Um, and that's why body check-in before, body mm-hmm. check-in in the middle of the conversation, you know, in the heat of the moment to, to calm yourself down or notice what's going on. And then body check-in after as a debriefing. How did that go? What did I learn? What can I do different or better next time? You know, I go to have one of these challenging money conversation and no one does it great. You know, the first time it's a practice, like all of these parts, you know, everything I'm talking about, it's a practice. I'm so glad you brought up the education piece. And also you, you said, you said something about the credit card debt and the student loan debt. And I I just want to take a step back. I know your work is so individual. It's about the internal relationship with money so much, but I do want to nest us in a larger um, cultural story, like credit cards, uh, are break the usury laws in almost every state. I don't think that people who are my age, like in their early 50s, understand that we have gone through four economic downturns, massive unemployment, huge, I mean, we've gone through so many different ups and downs. It has hardly been a stable 30 years as adults for most of us. And, And then on top of that, you add significant changes in banking. Like prior to the 70s, there was no way to have a 25% interest rate on a credit card. It just didn't exist. Uh, and so that was a, a regulatory change that allowed the banks to open up in a, in, and said that the, the, what determined whether the bank could charge interest was the state in which the bank was located, not where the customer lived, which allowed banks to base themselves in the Dakotas and start offering all kinds of credit card and credit offers to people at things that were far beyond their means. But that's literally illegal, according to most state constitutions. So we are nested in this like political uh, system that will take advantage if you're not vigilant. It's not normal. Yes, well said to all of that. So while I come more from, you know, the personal part of this, I have to study the macro side and the political side and the economic side and what's happening in laws, you know, on the side, it's a, it's a hobby, you know, but that's why I find people who are experts in this field, because this is what they study day in and day out. And Michael Bovee, my credit card guy, you know, this is activism for him. So he loves helping people um, who have incredibly crazy high interest rates. Um, he loves helping people get out of that situation. He called it triage, COVID triage, no debt triage, debt triage. So yeah, yeah this is triage. activism work 
for him. And I love sending people to him to help. Yes. Yes. I think my point was you're not in it alone. If you think that you're in it alone because you're in a hole or you're not making a lot of money right now, or you just don't know what you're doing, we're all in it. It's collective healing. It's not just one-on-one. Are your your programs with a group? Yes. That's what I was going to say. So that's why I've been teaching in groups from day one, even when they were 10 people, you know, because I wanted to get people in the room from all different backgrounds, um, sharing openly and honestly, And, you know, when you do that, you really quickly realize you're not alone, you know, or the shame starts to dissolve or you see someone in the room who's similar to you or you see someone in the room who is just like your mom or family member or brother, you know, or you see someone in the room who's so opposite of you and you you grow deeper compassion. So I love groups. I've, I rarely open my private sessions. I haven't in a few years and I have referrals for that. Um, and some people need to do this really privately, you know, but I want people to do it in groups. And I have an incredibly, um, we moved off of Facebook last year, finally, you know, after having my private groups in Facebook. Um, so we're going into our second year of having a very private forum in my teaching platform. And I have a whole set of community guidelines, um, you know, to help create a safe place. And But it's it's about sharing in there. And of course, you have to monitor how much to share and when. But whenever we share, it's incredibly brave. It's incredibly courageous. Um, you're speaking for 50 other people in the room or you're asking a question for 100 other people in the group. Um, and this year I have uh, 15 alumni who've been in the program for years because, yeah, they take it one year and some people are happy. They have the content forever and other people realize they want the community. They want access to me and my te- you know, guest teachers and they keep coming back. And now I have 15 of them who are going to help hold the space and just guide people in the process that, um, yes, we're, it's a practice, it's baby step, we're fine tuning. And we're doing this in a community, in a group so that we can all see each other, learn from each other, really get we're not alone. And all of this and, and, you know, even just sharing credit card debt, people don't necessarily share the numbers of how much it is, but they share strategies. So they share who they went to for support or how they're paying it down or how they're, how they're dealing, you know, with that really high interest rate. And that just helps so much. So I went and asked my, in the group, in the spirit of the group, I went and asked my team, like, what were some of their money stories? And um, here are some big ones that maybe we could tick off. The first one is, um, I grew up in a family of gamblers where money was a magical thing. And um, someone might have traded a farm implement for a tiger cub on any given day. So what do you do if you've grown up in a family where money was never treated as stability or as where there was no safe base? So, you know, I've, I've heard probably every single money scenario. And yeah, some people grow up Um, in families where one of the parents, or it sounds like there might've even been two, were gamblers, you know? Um, So, you know, again, we all grow up in a space, in an environment that shows us how they're handling money. And then from there, we, you know, we live it, we see it in our bodies and it impacts us, it affects us in negative ways, healthy ways. And so that's why it's so important to do all that money story work, you know, I have so many journal prompts that are in my book, in my program, on my blog, you know, of just how to unravel, like, how did that affect you? What choices did you make from that? What dynamics or patterns are still playing themselves out that are healthy or unhealthy, right? And then what pathways and roads do you want to create for yourself? Some people, 
you know, may have learned gambling and then they found a creative way to uh, make money and and they kind of live on the edge and um, they take big risks or maybe they're in the stock market and that's worked for them. And other people growing up in that environment realize the ups and downs of that, um, you know, really didn't feel good in their body, didn't feel good as a lifestyle. Um, and so they're choosing a different path and a different relationship to money. You know, it could be that they're choosing work that's really in alignment with their values and that feels really good to them. It could be that they choose to have um, a steady job. You know, it's there's no right or wrong with any of this. Um, it's it's really feeling into how we grew up, how that worked for us, how we're different and how do we really rewrite our money story. So I'm saying that really simply where there's tons of journal prompts and exercises and practices, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in my work that takes you through how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And you went, I mean, but you, it's the perfect response to drive home that beautiful invitation that how you relate to money should be tied to what you value and how it feels in your body. Yeah, I want to say one more thing because you know, uh, you know, most families like I do money different than my siblings, and we may even have similar values on the surface. But even two people as a couple, you never get them. Even if they came together based on their values, they're still gonna spend and earn and save and give and invest differently. You know, and you're gonna have to learn how to talk about that and realize your differences and see where you can compromise and where you can come together. But you, we all grew up in families where. We may have very different values and how we spend money. And yeah, it's not comfortable in moments to be different or to do things different or your parents or siblings may have really strong opinions of the right way to do this. And I, as you're saying, I really invite everyone to find their own way. Um, I'll give one little short example of this. I, when I teach money maps, that's the third phase. It's, it's a version of budgeting, but some people don't like that word. And I like to rename everything. So call it a map of intention, call it um, a money map, you know. And one woman was having so much of her mother's voice. Um, her, her mother, she came from a very wealthy family. Her mother was really into luxury. And so when she would sit down to do her own money map, she had to create a money map for her mom first. Her mom, she was all luxury. She created like an entire money map of how, like the expenses and the numbers and what that would look like. Then on the other side, she grew, she's in a very um, strong um, activism community. And so she had to do a money map for that voice, which was very simplistic. And then she found her own middle ground in the middle and she was able to create a money map, which just, you know, is based on her values. And, and the whole money practices section has a whole thing about what are your values, list them out. Let's even rename your, um, you know, your, your, instead of rent or mortgage, rename it home or sanctuary or love shack or rename that damn debt or, you know, to, well, this was a huge life change, you know, in my life. Um, where and I, you know where I changed from the corporate world to um, starting my own business, or I went through a big health crisis, or you know they renamed it to really honor where they are. So I love bringing your values and renaming into the actual bookkeeping system, but then we also bring it into the money maps. And so she found a middle path, and I can't remember what she called it, but she had to get those extra voices of how everyone else in her life does money and what their values are, and find her own middle path with the actual expenses. Um, and numbers and values in there that were right for her. 
Yeah, this is such an inner trusting because if you do that, you might be a beacon for someone else and they might actually come toward your way, which is, you know, you have to believe that your inner still voice has some wisdom, that you're tapping into something that's more universal also when you're inventing something new. So I wanted to ask you, I have, I have another one here. Um, yeah. This one is from my, um, one of our vendors. She does amazing work and she's, and and she just can't bring herself to invoice for it. Sometimes it'll take her 90 days before she invoices. And she started to talk about um, something you also mentioned in the book, which is being afraid to ask for what she's worth. And you touched a little bit on that before, but this sort of under earning or not requesting payment. And what are some practical tips that you can um, do to kind of get over something like that? Yeah, I've, that's a really common one, you know, for women is to not invoice. Um, and then we f eventually feel like crap around that. And it just, you know, keeps in this downward cycle. And so there's a few things here is one, um, you know, I, I really like to create money dates for myself. And I, I like to invite people to see this as a practice. And, and so this may take a few, you know, a few sitting down and scheduling. So create a nice space, um, light your candles, get out your essential oils, you know, get out your chocolate, get out your, you know, play some music, um, set a space. So then when you sit down to have a money date, you know, it's sacred and whatever that means to you, or it's a creative space or, you know, add in whatever qualities you would like. And so there's a space in an area, and this is part of how I teach money practices, really practical sitting down to have a money date, which is just sitting down and asking yourself what needs my attention right now around money. And, and so creating a space is one very practical thing to begin to help. And, you know, setting money dates, sometimes we initially have to schedule it. It could be once a week. It could be twice a week. It could be 15 minutes to start. That may be plenty for others. They could do 30 minutes. And so it's some, for some of us, it's actually scheduling a money date and then doing all those things that I mentioned, but also in a money date, you may take me to take some time to journal about and do a body check-in and give yourself some space to go deeper into what is coming up for you. What are the memories? What's the feeling in your body? Um, you know, I can remember my mom paying the bills at the dining room table and, and being pretty anxious about it as a kid. That had a huge impact on me when I first started learning my own bookkeeping. Well, you know, and I avoided my bookkeeping for years before I started doing it. Um, so, you know, so giving yourself a little bit of space to go deeper and journaling what's coming up, what is the memories, what am I so afraid of? Um, if I, you know, and really looking at your pricing and spending some time there does, you know, I have a whole, I don't know if it's in the book, I think it is. And then a few articles on how do you really determine your fees? And it's not just how does it feel? What number feels right in your body? It's also what community do you want to serve? Um, it's also what is your personal financial house need at this time? It's, yeah, you know, do you want to be serving lower income, um, middle income? Do you want to have a few different layers to your pricing? And really going into your pricing and how that feels and what's right. And that's something to evaluate every six months. So maybe a little bit more work around there. You know, maybe every Friday or every Monday, whatever it is in your money date, you set the whole space, you check in. And you you send off each invoice 
um, as with intention, as a prayer, um, you know, with the sitting quietly with the body check-ins and you do work before you send it off, you send it off and then you do a whole check-in. How does that feel? Um, does that feel good? You know, and again, these are practices that helps you really understand like what's, what still doesn't feel good, um, what needs to shift, how can you send those off differently? You know, eventually as a practice, it starts to really shift and then you create habits or you create a sacred practice of, you know, every Friday where you have your money dates and money practice um, and it starts to reveal itself more like, what are you so afraid of? I've had people who say that, you know, they would sit down, it was the opposite. They would sit down and pay their bills like within 10 minutes, like 10 bills, and they would do it so speedy fast. And they had to learn how to slow down, stay in their body, actually be present um, with each one. This person had a, had a big IRS debt. And, you know, that was just one of the ways it was playing out. She just wanted to have nothing to do with money and get rid of it so quickly and pay these bills so quickly instead of slowing down and saying, hello, each vendor, thank you. Or here's, you know, here's my invoice or, you know, I, I like to pay invoices within an hour of them coming, but she had to really, so one of the changes that that the woman with the IRS debt had to do, she came up with this, she renamed her IRS bill to Iris, which she saw as an old lady in the larger community that she was helping out. And so she oh. renamed it to Iris. That was her thing. Isn't that great? And then, yeah. you know, it started, it really started sometimes just renaming shifted the energy of it. And then she also with her money dates and practices was able to slow down and pay her bills more slowly. So I hope there was something in there, some concrete next steps and practices. To oh, explain. yeah. I think the ritual, the money date chapter was really charming. When I first glanced at it, I thought, oh, I would like to go on a money date with my partner. And then I was like, oh, this is actually a money date with yourself. And it could be extended to do it with someone else and create a little bit more of a sacred bubble around what is, as you mentioned, we started often a conflict area in a relationship. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, I like to say, learn how to do a money date, practice them yourself first. This is for you and your relationship to money, right? And then couples and money or couples money dates are a whole other thing because we weren't taught, you know, how to have healthy conversations around money. And couples, you know, have so much baggage around this or things unsaid for years. And so I teach couples how to have a new kind of money date. So from step one, they're not talking about the numbers right away even though I love talking about the numbers and our values, but step one is, is story time, you know, the money story, sharing what you learn, what you remember, what memories from your childhood, from your upbringing, we start there. Then a second money date or third or fourth, maybe then you talk about your values and how you spend and save. And they're usually different, you know, and then you go into who's on what. And so mm. couples have a, you know, or a, yeah, any kind of couple um, in, in my program now, we have mother and daughters and mother and sons, and um, we have cousins. And um, we opened up. I used to offer couples pricing, and we we off this year because of everything that's going on with COVID. Um, the challenges of that, we we opened up that couples pricing, so it could be anybody you wanted to bring. Um, and so I'm going to have to learn, I'm going to have to come up with new teachings on mother and daughter money dates, mother and sons. And I'm so excited. I love the idea of a family money date. And I was just thinking, I wish I'd known you, uh, when I was married, I can remember one time I had, 
my we had moved into a new house and I had to get a bed for my son. And um, my husband at the time said, we can't afford a mattress. For, we can't afford a bed for him. We, he's going to have to sleep on the floor until we go another month. He's a teenage boy. It'll be fine. Yes. And I like tacitly nodded my head. And then I went and bought a bed for him. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I see how that went. Yeah. I, I see. They, deli- they, del- they deliver the bed and he's pissed. And then I just turned to him and I said, no child of mine is going to sleep on the floor. Yes. And then I, I remember back to like when I, like we moved like 17 times before I got out of high school. And whenever we moved into a new rental house, there was always like, there's a mattress on a floor. That's your room. And it was such a trauma that, and I would never have consciously connected it until that moment. And yes. that gave us a jumping off point to have a conversation around safety and our children and being good providers. And like, I would go without a thousand other things before that, but I didn't have you. So that happened. That, and, that, <laughs> and, you know, he had his own version of telling you we weren't going to do this, right? Instead of initiating a dialogue, right, about that. Uh-huh. And you, because yeah. of, you know, your history um, and didn't say that clearly to him, but made a very clear choice and decision, right? And that was your response to him. And there was never a moment of let's sit down and you didn't have the tools, right? And so many right. money money conversations with couples happen, you know, when someone gets the credit card bill and is like horrified by how the other one's spending money and goes running to them and they're in the shower and they try to have the conversation or before bed, you know, worse, you know, every once in a while I can, we have a bed co- money conversation, but most of them don't work you know and so yes it's 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 creating a really safe space you know so that you can learn how to talk about money in a new way and have a place where you can bring all those memories and 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 all of what just happened that like that's such a great money dynamic between the two of you he tells you how it's going to be you know <laughs> you, you well know. <laughs> that didn't, that marriage didn't last well, so there we have it. <laughs> well, it was, but I, I wish I wish it would have. And the communication—you're mm-hmm. totally, you're totally right—that the communication about those kinds of things was so um, deeply unconscious. We did get to the point where we said, to your point, no drive-by conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, no, like we called them, like it's like a drive-by shooting, a drive-by yeah. money conversation is just throwing things at someone. No talking about it in the car when you can't make eye contact you know, things like that. So it did improve. Yeah. Let me give one more tip. And and it sounds like you were heading in that direction. Um, I had a a client student who once said, um, her and her husband initiated this. They ask each other, is now a good time to have a money conversation? You know, so simple. Is now a good time? So you guys were getting there, but didn't yeah. yeah yeah we had cancer cancer intervened that was okay. a whole nother thing this wasn't on my uh, list of the of what my team said but i will tell you he was uninsured when he got cancer and obamacare was instituted about three months later that cancer treatment was a quarter million dollars but there's this this other piece you talk in the book about major transitions or big surprises or things that happen that you that suddenly become difficult to navigate and that's where the spiritual component like the resilience the knowing that you're supported knowing that you'll find a way um, came in for us i wonder if you could speak to that a little bit yeah i just got the chills um so, you know, in a long life, if we have the honor of having one, we're all going to have these big moments, right? Um, whether it's a transition, intentional or not, whether it's a huge curveball, um, 
like cancer, like COVID, um, smaller ones, loss of job, you know, these are real. These are going to happen to us, right? And I think that, you know, we know in life we're going to have ups and downs and ebbs and flows, but we all forget that that's going to happen in our money lives as well. And so, yes, I like to honor that all the time. And I have a few teachings that have expanded since I wrote the book. I used to, you know, call it Money Cohen, K-O-A-N. And that comes from the Zen Buddhist um, concept of sitting with a challenge, sitting with a riddle long enough until you find a solution, until you find some creative solution. And, you know, ultimately going to a deep place to find a level of trust um, and a knowingness and a naming and an honoring. We are in a transition. We don't know how long this is going to be. Um, we don't know how long it's going to take us to get through this or find an answer or come up with a new solution. Sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's a few years, right? And to trust that we will get through these really huge life-altering, life-shattering um, curveballs, you know, transitions that we all go through. I had one when I had my son at 40 and we had a huge complication in our labor and I really, really needed um, to stay at home and recover for a long time. And, um, and, you know, I remember saying to myself during that time, this is a transition, like hang in there. This is not forever right? Um, we will not have to be going into, my husband used to call it maximum lockdown, which sounds so intense, but it became playful after a while. Like, are we in maximum lockdown? No, not that extreme, but we just have to be really mindful of all the extra expenses right now. This is not forever, but we really need to simplify. And I had to make huge changes after I had my son and really simplified my business model. And it took a few years before I started to grow again, you know, and we all think that we're always supposed to grow instead of some years we're growing our income. Some years we're, you know, just staying um, above water. Some years we're paying down debt, Some, you know, and some years we're, um, we're in a huge life transition and we're just hoping, you know, to stay above the water. And sometimes we don't. I just want to say, um, just a, f a few little practices in this. And um, I, I just did a whole piece on how, how do you work with curveballs? And I've named a lot of it, but I just want to bring them in here. And I, ho I hope this doesn't simplify it, but in any big curveball, it is one, you know, giving yourself the space to really name and clarify and honor what are the set of emotions that are that are coming up and really even noticing if you're in a fight, flight or freeze. Um, you know, I found out a few years ago we were being audited by the IRS and, um, it really shocked me that I had had an easy audit 20 years before. And it took me a few weeks where one in the middle of the day, I got in the bathtub and said, what's going on? I didn't say it. Like I said it more gently, like what's going on? I'm underwater. And I realized I was in kind of a whole, all of them fight, flight and freeze. And so it took me few hours in the bathtub to really just name and honor, acknowledge, this is where we're at. You know, we're in a huge transition right now. So naming it all, sitting with the feelings. Um, and then I'm, I got out of the bath. And then the second step for me is always, okay, what are the set of 
practical questions to start asking. And they're different for every curveball and every transition. So just start asking new questions. You know, what kind of support do I need right now? Um, or even just what does this remind? I mean, in the bathtub, it was what does this remind me of? Oh, my parents saw it. You know, um, what are the deeper feelings around this? But then the practical questions are um, every single time they're different. You, um, whenever we're in a curveball, start naming different questions um, to try to see it from a different angle or, or or ask it in a new way. So you, and maybe I'm not being clear, but I have a whole set of questions um, on any of my money Cohen or how to deal with a curveball. I, I share different questions. And then you need to sit with your questions and go to your friends with your questions or go on your hike with your questions or find a new person to support you, um, a new financial player to support you. Um, and then go in the deeper sitting of the trust and the trust and the naming. This will not last forever. Um, this is an ebb. Um, this happens for all of us and we will get through this and know this the solutions and new options will come so i hope that that's just a little bit of some practical steps that you can take in these curveballs yeah that's great it's so patient again a hallmark of your work so my um i've one more and this is well, actually two more uh this is from actually one of my boys and he said i was working my tail off at minimum wage um in a food emporium in Los Angeles. And then I did a voiceover commercial, which took me 30 minutes and I got a check for $800 and I keep getting royalties from that. And it's six years later. And he goes, when I got that check, I realized for the first time in my life, there was no correlation between how hard I worked because I was humping heavy things in this job 10 hours a day and what I earned. And that this story that people had told me was, you know, work hard, earn, save, and then if you're lucky and there's extra, you can invest really was totally untrue that there's no correlation between what he perceived as work and what your reward was. And so I would, that, that was that was one question. And then the other one that's still out from the team is rich people are kind of evil and I would never want to be one of them. I'm a spiritual person. Okay. So, Ladies choice. Okay. Pick one of those okay. two. Well, maybe they're connected. I don't know. Let's see if I can connect them. Um, so I, I, the first one wasn't really a question. It was more of just a realization. Um, and I had almost the same one as him. I was, you know, with a master's degree, I was making $11 an hour as a social worker, as a counselor um, for the first few years of my 20s and worked hard, you know, worked incredibly hard and couldn't get past that money ceiling. I was like, can I get a raise to 13, please? You know? Um, and so I remember starting to ask those questions and I, it was also at the same time, which your son is alluding to is also just the value of different work. Um, and the work that he was doing was given a certain amount of money, a certain value. Um, same with social workers or overnight care compared to, you know, what a lawyer charges per hour or what a doctor charges or, you know, that's all changing. But um, or 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 being able to um, do a commercial, you know. Um, and so I, I remember early on, I was like, I'm going to take a stand and get our, um, you know, this whole, I'm all social workers, I'm going to stand up and we're going to get paid more. And then I was like, I don't know if I can be in activism in that I just need to look around at my field and see, is there any other way to break through money ceilings? Um, 
And it was a little slower for me than what your son did or what he got to experience. But I think I then went into accounting and then made 13 an hour and 15 an hour and learned QuickBooks and made 20 and 25 and then eventually moved into doing financial therapy and so on. And then also doing groups, you know, it's leveraging your time in a completely different way. So I think, you know, that hour for hour, um, so many of us do that for a while and, and, and some of us, you know, some of us get stuck in that. Um, and for some people, it may even work, right? There's no right way here. And then for other others of us, we start, you know, I just remember I wanted to get a massage and I couldn't afford that. I wanted to buy good chocolate and bring it to community potlucks. and I couldn't do that. Um, and also at that same time, it leads into the second question was also just for me as a therapist or a social worker was we weren't supposed to even strive for money. We weren't supposed to want money, talk about money. We weren't supposed to want to make a really good livelihood, right? And so all of those questions, and it wasn't spiritual, right? I was also, went to a graduate school um, that was Buddhist and had those principles and that was flying around a lot, right? Um, it's not spiritual to want money, talk about money. And then I saw half of my community who came from wealth, um, just being able to donate different to their spiritual teachers. At some point, we can realize um, what's not working or just simply that certain fields are valued in different ways. And we can choose to stand up and be an activist for that. Or we can also additionally find creative ways to offer our skill set and work in the world. Um, like your son did. I'm curious what he's doing now. Um and because he, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's also, you know, we all have generalizations or stereotypes of, you know, wealthy people are like this. And that was, again, why I love to teach in groups because we get to dispel that. And sometimes I get my folks from wealthy families who have, you know, tons of shame, tons of guilt. And, and then we have many people in the community initially thinking, well, what's the matter? They have it made. You know, they, they've always had their needs met. But, you know, one of my dearest interviews is with a, a very close friend now um, who came from a very wealthy family. And she talked very openly. Um, yes, at some point she realized she should be fine. She should have no issues right? No relationship issues, no relationships with self-confidence, with self-worth, with food, with anything because she has money. And then she finally realized, well, that's silly, right? We, we are human. We, no matter how much, how little, yes, it makes a difference once you get past 50,000 or 75,000, depending on where you live in the world. Yes. Um, but we, we all have our human issues, right? We all have our human stories, and having tons of money doesn't, you know, always equate. The last thing I'll say is that, you know, a lot of people I know choose to make more money so that they can donate more in the world. And they want to eventually, you know, make their money in accordance and alignment with their values and be able to spend and invest and be able to contribute and donate and move money um, from one community to another. Um you know, and so all of that comes from being able to earn a really nice livelihood. And so, you know, I've seen, um, oh, why is the word, the evil is coming up so much since all the elections, but and maybe that's not the right world, but money is a tool and, and we can use it for the force of um, good in the world and we can use it, um, f you know, in the force of 
really harming. Let's find some, I need some other words here. Um, being really harmful to our planet and people or really honoring and serving and being beneficial, right? Yeah, I think my teacher calls it receiving for the self alone. And that at some point you cease to want to receive for the self alone because it's kind of a false spiritual idea. You're not alone. You're part of a whole fabric of creation. I wanted to tell you when I was reading this, um, the, one of the chapters in here, I think it was the part of the phase one practices. I got this sort of matrix visual in my mind about uh, earning on one dimension and keeping on the other dimension. And then like if you're under earning and under keeping, you're sort of on subsistence. But if you're over earning and over keeping, you're like a hoarder, like a greedy hoarder. But there's some kind of balance between like earning appropriately for what your values are and and giving enough away and keeping enough to create personal that you have personal accountability for taking care of yourself. Like at Burning Man, one of the principles is, you know, radical responsibility, personal responsibility. And another is radical generosity. So that you're you're in both positions. You're making sure that you're not necessarily leaning into others, that you could make it on your own, but that also your attitude is what can I give, not what can I get overall. And that seems to have served me pretty well. There's there's so many layers to that. I write about that, and that does tie into under-earning, <clears throat> but it also ties into all the concepts you're saying of, you know, what does under-earning mean? I had a partner at one point who was working in corporate accounting and she was earning a lot of money, but she was also working 50, 60 hours a week. And she at some point said, I'm in the category of under-earning, even though she was talking about it more from her energy and time, right? And then there are people who certainly um, come to me and say, I, I'm volunteering so much, and but I'm not... I don't, I'm not meeting my basic needs at this point. I'm like, okay, well, you know, we need to evaluate this at different phases in our lives. And yes, you can be overgiving in certain ways and need to pull back. Um, and so it's some, it is an evaluation of where are you at? Where can you give? Um, one of the things that I'm always evaluating my equation, even though it's, there's not like exact numbers is energy, time, money, family, and health. And when I'm making any life decision, that's what I'm always coming back to. And there's probably other adjectives or qualities or concepts that are not in there, but those five energy, time, money, family, and health, that's always how I'm weighing any big decisions. Yeah. You say in the book um, something about becoming a financial grown up, a money grown up, a grown up around money. And I wonder, um, given what you just said, if you have kind of a firm definition of what that looks like. I don't. I don't. I want everyone to to answer that question for themselves. Um, and, you know, it, it, in general, I would say, you know, going through the three phases of my methodology, money healing, money practices, money maps, um, you know, creating a money life and relationship that feels healthy for you um, and that it's you know, we're constantly growing and fine tuning and updating, and it's going to change every year based on maybe your values don't change, but certainly priorities in how much you can do and what's happening. Um, so it's, you know, and realizing that, that 
it's an ongoing practice. So from, and grown up is such a funny th- word because some people have such a reaction to it. They're like, I don't want to be a grown up, you know, or other people <laughs> say I'm a grown up in every other area of my life except money. And I'm still a teenager around money or, you know, I'm still rebelling in certain ways or I'm still an infant or toddler around money. And then they realize, okay, I would like to develop myself in this, in this area of life, just like I have in every other way. But I want people to define for themselves what becoming an adult around money means to them. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not into, okay, financial freedom. You you want to make so much money so that you don't have to work. And I, I like working, you know, I like working. But what's so important to me is finding work that was in alignment with my values or creating a livelihood where I'm really serving my family in the larger world, you know. Um, but it's different each year. So everyone needs to define that differently. Um, how do you define have a healthy relationship to money? Um, how do you want to use money? Um, how do you want to interact with it? You know, I'll have some people come to me and say money is the root of all evil and I want to see the world without any money. I'm like, okay. Um, but for now, this is this is how we're interacting. Now, if you want to change the systems, I really honor that. Um, we need work, right? We, it's, they're, they're, there's inequality um, in, right? And how much White women uh-huh. get paid compared to men, how much women of color, and you can break that down, right? There are huge inequalities that need work, but I really want you first to come back to what is a healthy, conscious, creative, meaningful, playful, honoring relationship to money mean to you? And maybe it's something that you reevaluate and ask yourself every year. I love that. Yeah. Response, responsive, uh, knowledgeable in choice would be a word that comes up for me um, where that and and awareness this idea of am I aware of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it that's such a key part I love that you brought up this idea that the system can be changed we're seeing so many people in our community experimenting with new kinds of barter and person-to-person exchange we're loving blockchain and cryptocurrency we're loving what happens when you try to re- when you remove central financial system players uh, from the. I think the financial industry takes seven percent of GDP, and that's a, a tax that we're all paying. We pay so much to use what we earn, and so I feel like there are people out there who, in fintech and in other segments, that if you're interested in fundamental changes while you're becoming aware of why you get anxious at the cosmetics counter or whatever that story was <clears> in the book. While you're doing that, that there are plenty of people you can join up with to talk about foundational system change. Um, I get a lot of flack um, as a business owner for doing both, charging prices for our products that are reflective of its underlying value, and then turning around and giving that away uh, to organizations that are supporting women or who are fighting for organic ingredients. And I say whether I how I make money and whether or not I believe in running a successful business and how I use those proceeds are decoupled for me, that I can be a successful entrepreneur and I cannot want to keep it for myself at the end of the day. And that money for me is one of those like most fluid forms of, of power and um, power being defined as the, the way you can move energy to change things in your environment. Like I like being able to direct resources to domestic violence shelters. And I like being able to hire wonderful artists to support um, the work we're doing and make sure they get paid fairly. And so I'd rather have my money go there than have it be uh, feeding into a system that creates violence. And 
that's for me as a business owner and an investor, like how I've articulated why I want to do it. It's definitely not so I can get a bigger, fancier house or car, um, to your point earlier. So, yeah, I just want to uh, speak to that for a moment. I Kelly Deals is someone who I listened to and watched, and she did a piece about capitalism. And she was saying, but small, I would say small business does not equal capitalism. And I think we're all trying to pull that apart. Um, and so, yeah, how do we create a successful business and livelihood, right? And at the same time, how are we changing culture um, or changing inequalities? And how do we, you know, a, a lot of the contributions and donations that I do are to Black women um, who are, you know, running their own businesses or who are single moms um, as artists. Um, and that's one of, one of the ways um, that I like to redistribute. Um, money and also you know something that I started doing many years ago is my money memoir series and because I like to teach through storytelling um, as you can see in the book I today I share a lot of my own stories because they're just at the forefront and I'm also very protective of you know my students or clients stories and I always have to ask for permission and so every story in the book we of course had um, consent and permission and because um, everything is so confidential to me um, but in my money memoir series, I interview folks from all different lineages and heritage and economic classes, and they share their money stories, the good and the bad and the challenges and the triumphs. Um, and I love hearing people from all different backgrounds and and everything that you said before. I do have an entire page um, on Barry Tesler. It's macro resources, and I link to so many people like Bernard Leotar, who I've been following for years about alternative currencies, um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates about reparations and different interviews that I've done with financial advisors. Um, one woman, Rachel Robichaudi, who created social justice investing and on and on and on. So I know we didn't talk about that. that we didn't talk about that really at all in this interview. Um, so I really appreciate everything you're saying here at the end and please know I have a lot of interviews and resources, um, on this side of money as well. well I just want to say so much uh, gratitude for you for bringing such a full perspective to dealing with something that's part of our lives for bringing your spiritual intelligence, your integrity, 30 years of experience doing this, your therapeutic work, and then also this big social equity and structural piece, which is so rare. So um, thank you for joining me today. I adore you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I think, yeah, no, it was a wonderful interview. And I think we're doing this just so everyone knows post-election. And I don't think my energy has come down yet, um, even though I had a great big cry and everything. So um, thank you. I hope I was calm enough in some moments to articulate some of my methodology. Um, thank you so you much for are, having me. You are. And I'm going to put in the show notes for everybody, the link to the book, the link to the programs and to some of the other things that we talked about. But if this is an area of, of freedom for you, like the whole podcast is about finding little places in your life where a shift in belief, a shift in habit can liberate you a little bit so you live your life in more freedom and joy. 
And um, I think this is a big area for a lot of people. So uh, keep listening and check the show notes for um, links and go find Barry. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rose Woman Pod. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host. The pod is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, a company I started in the intimate skincare space. You can find our amazing products at rosewoman.com. Vegan, plant-based, pure, effective, all the good stuff. The guests and I imagine people out there when we do these shows and think, how can we bring one little bit of insight, one little lever to create more spaciousness or happiness out to the world? So if you like the pod, you know what to do. Please share it rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff so that uh, we can feel your love and support and keep doing it. Have a wonderful day no matter where you're at. May the grace and joy that rests at the center of you be readily apparent. <laughs>